Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I am Annie McManus. Welcome back to Changes. So, we start May in Deaf Awareness Week with an actor and the 2021 Strictly Come Dancing champion, Rose Ailing Ellis, our first ever deaf guest on Changes. Rose has been deaf since birth. She is a British Sign Language user. She's known for playing Frankie Lewis in EastEnders. She is also the recipient of the Visionary Honours for Inspirational Person of the Year. In week eight of her appearance on Strictly Come Dancing, Rose's couple's choice dance with her dance partner, Giovanni Pernice, featured a period of silence as a tribute to the deaf community. The music just stopped, but they carried on dancing. It was incredibly moving, and it earned them the 2021 Heat Unmissables Award for TV Moment of the Year. Rose's appearance on Strictly prompted a 4,000% increase in uptake of British Sign Language classes. That is just phenomenal. And she has now been backing the campaign to make British Sign Language a recognised language in England, something which Rose explains more about in our chat. There is so much to talk about with Rose. She is a walking, talking example of change. Personal change, making change happen, changing perceptions, changing the law. She changes things by the very nature of just being present. And I think you will agree that her presence is so charming and irresistible uh, when you hear this conversation. Welcome. Welcome to Changes, Rose Ailing Ellis. Rose, you are so welcome to Changes. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And how are you in general? I'm good, yeah. I'm, I feel like I'm trying to get back into routine of normal life because it's been so long of not a normal life at all. Yeah. So I'm... Um, it's nice to get back into routine, um, seeing friends and family, even driving my own car is quite nice. It's nice to drive my car. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, we're really happy to have you here. First of all, can you show me the word change in British Sign Language? So you put your forefinger over the top of your thumb, both hands, and then one is to your chef, one is away from your chef, and then you just swap them around. Oh, wow. Shape. Yeah, it looks like change. Exactly. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, love that. Um, so let's start with you and your childhood change, Rose. Give us a little picture of growing up in, in Hythe and what it was like to grow up and talk us up to your childhood change, please. I live in a very small town and I'm probably being the only deaf person in the whole town. I went to a school with not very many deaf people, so it can be quite isolating. Mm. And I remember growing up thinking I was the only deaf person in the world. But I'm not. And it wasn't until much later when I went to nursery in primary school that I started to meet other deaf children. The biggest change in my childhood that changed everything in my life was probably sign language, learning sign language. Yeah. Yeah, because um, my family were told by the expert, so-called expert, that 
if I just speak and not sign, that's the best thing you can do to your child. Right. But my mum was struggling trying to teach me to speak. But how can you teach a very deaf child how to speak? That's just, nah. So um, she went to a, a deaf event where their families come together to meet deaf children. And she showed so many parents communicating their child with sign language. Yeah. And the child could communicate back. And she got quite upset because I wasn't communicating back to her. And she was really, really upset. And she was like, that's it. I'm teaching her sign language. I'm not listening to anybody. I'm doing it. And I think that was a moment of a big shame because that did me identity. If I didn't have that, I think I would be very lost. How old were you? Well, she found out I was deaf when I was about 18 months. Right. Quite late to find that out because back then, it was in the 90s, so they didn't really have a hearing care. And apparently, I went to have a hearing care and the doctor just clapped their hand behind me and I turned around and I did sweet. So I did um, reward. So I learned that every time I look at the doctor, I get a war. So I take part in my hearing test. <laughs> So, and my mum was like, no, she is deaf, she is deaf, she's just smart enough to look at you. She just likes sweets and understands your game, yeah. Yeah, it's it just a game for me, so I took part in my hearing test. And then eventually I got diagnosed as being deaf, and that's where it's all shame for my mum and my family as well, because they never met anyone deaf, they didn't know anything about the deaf culture. So, which was a pretty new experience for them. But now, my mum said, and she looked back, she'd been... Actually, it's not that bad. It's really fun. But at the time, it was like the whole world shame. And Rose, what age were you when she taught you how to sign? Were you still very young? I was very young because um, my mum went to sign language classes, the BSL, once a week. And she had to travel for about two, an hour or a long way for her to get to the class. So, and she was a single mum as well, so she was on her own. So um, she was learning and teaching me at the same time. Wow. But, and then I didn't really speak properly till about five years old, but I knew sign language from probably two, three years old. So it was a long, long process of me to be able to speak like this now. And how was your school years then? It was challenging because um, I did have to go to school that have a deaf unit. Right. But um, my mum had to fight a lot to get the needs and the support so that I can get the same access as everybody else. It can be quite tough, still can be, but I was quite lucky I have other deaf students as well. I didn't feel alone or anything like that. I have other deaf friends. I think that's really important to be around with people that is similar to you. Yeah, and so your mum had to fight for an interpreter for you in the classroom, yeah? Yeah, the, so I have um, support in class, I have note taker, but I didn't always have interpreter in class. So sometimes teacher, well, they don't, they're not always deaf aware. So for example, I've been in the classroom, they turn their back writing the whiteboard and I can't lip read them. So I miss what they're saying and I just read what they write on a board. Okay. And after a while in school, did you just take that that was how it was or did you ever say, I need to see you? Yeah, I think um, I didn't know that I could make it more accessible. Mm. So they were 
obviously there was a moment where I felt like everyone could have a better awareness, but I felt like this is what the world is, this is what it's going to be like for me, I just have to adapt for the world, not meeting me halfway. So I always had that mentality that, you know what, this is where it is, and no one's going to adjust it for me, because that's not how the world works. <laughs> and also probably you had the idea of everything being a fight ingrained in you, like your mum having to fight for your access just to be able to have the same education as everyone else. Yeah, yeah. So literally think nursery, always through education, through college, through my university, and still now, well, so fighting for what I need is my second nature now. Mm. Um, so you said you had deaf friends in school. Did they end up being your friends, the other deaf people? Yeah, I um, it's quite interesting. My mum, probably the only one that we were fighting a lot, she never gave up. And some other parents don't, they love their child, of course, but they don't always do the fighting for them. So uh, there were some other deaf children that did have problems and were a bit naughty, or a bit trouble, but it's not, it's not them at all. It's of course, yeah. The, the frustration. Yeah, yeah. And that's really common in the deaf community. Um, a lot of people think they're so naughty, but nah, they're not. They're just frustrated. Yeah. Can we talk about music? You know, we all know, obviously, you from winning Strictly and just having these beautiful moments on Strictly and changing so many people's perception <laughs> of the deaf community on Strictly. But just the technicality of how you hear music. I read somewhere that you said, hearing it does not really mean hearing it through my ear. And I was interested in that. I wonder, could you tell me a bit about that, please? Yeah. It's quite hard to explain because I don't know what you hear. So I don't really know what I'm comparing it with. But I can try and say, well, I've got my hearing in. Sometimes I can hear it, but sometimes the room is too echoey or too big. Normally I play music really loudly in my car because it's small and compact. So I kind of pick it up. But in the big hall, it can be quite echoey. I don't necessarily feel vibration. Some deaf <laughs> people do, but I don't, I don't really have a superpower. It's not like oh my God, I can hear everything if I touch something. Nah, I don't really work like that. It's just a different experience. And I think with the dancing, I rely so much on counting and I was following Gio so I would just follow him. So he listened to me music, I follow his lead and it became a muscle memory. So it looked like I was on time with the music, but it's actually it was because I was listening to Gio. And then there has to be an element of rhythm when it's all about counting and timing, right? Yeah. So like, I can hear like the beat in the stone. I can hear someone stinging, but I don't know exactly what they're saying. Yeah. But if it was that like, heavy rock, like metal rock music, it's just done like a beam rolling down the hill for me. I just can't understand rock music. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and there's another thing I read about that I was really interested in is what you talk about with regards to the hearing world versus when you're with people from the deaf community and how being in the hearing world it's stressful because there's so many more challenges to you in terms of being able to navigate life and conversations and all of that because of accessibility. Whereas in the deaf community, everything is just easy and you feel comfortable there. I was wondering, could you talk me through the two kind of places when you inhabit them and how you feel when you're in each? So 
I do love the hearing world because I do have some really good hearing friends. Um, my family is all hearing. Yeah. Um, but there are certain times where it can get a bit too much. So, for example, I've been around with hearing people for a long time. There are always a moment where I'm like, <sighs> I'm constantly, it's tiring because I'm lip reading all day long. I'm trying to sort of explain what it's like to be there. And if I'm with a group of hearing friends, I'm always constantly lip reading, trying to understand what's going on, trying to catch up the conversation. But when I decided, you know what, I'm going to hang around with my deaf friend, and then I have my friend over who is all deaf, they're all sign language, I can understand what's going on all the time. I don't have to make effort. It's less tiring. And also, when I, if I want to talk about certain things or things that frustrate me, I don't have to explain and then for them to feel like, oh, yeah, that would be frustrating. I can just be, oh, this is what's going on. And they're like, yeah, yeah, this is what's happening to me too. We don't have to explain in depth. We all know what it feels like. And sometimes you have no day frustrated and the best people to talk to are the deaf people. So at Depot, it's an extensive community. We all want... When we're not part of the community, we want to go to our own community to feel inclusive, I think. And can you tell me a bit about the deaf community and what it's like now? And, and I'm also really interested in just your favourite parts, your personal favourite things about British Sign Language, you know, about the language of British Sign Language. It's so much. I think sign language is so beautiful. It's such a beautiful language. So basically, you can be a metaphor in your English, but with British Sign Language, you can't be a metaphor. Everything has to be literal. So you say a sentence, we don't sign word by word. We sign the whole sentence. So we sign the feeling of the whole sentence. And that's why I think Sign Language is so expressive, because you can be so creative with it. Um, like, for example, you have different tone in your voice that show you different meaning. But with sign language, it can be how bitter. So like smelly, for example. So normally it's smelly, you would just use your hand and you're like, oh, smelly across your nose. But now when it's really smelly, you do it really small and then turn in front of your nose and you go, <laughs> with your face expression. And I presume you can have your own dialects within it and your own slang. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, we have a slang it have a meaning, but we can't explain what it is. It's just there. So when we translate English to be yourself, it's not always easy. Mm, mm. I love it. I'm just wondering the, the idea of communicating in this way. It feels like something you would be able to do from way younger than you would be able to actually talk. So, yeah, you can sign before you can speak. Right, right. And um, there are evidence that the baby can communicate what they knew before speaking. Right. So sign language actually helps. Yeah. So, for example, like milk, the baby would just do this. They need their hand and they just squeeze it together. Like your milk in the cow, basically. But they can tell you they're hungry. So you that less crying baby at earlier age. Rose, let's talk about your, your next change now. So this is the change that we asked you to talk about when you're a bit older, out of childhood, or nearly in this case. Tell me about this one. 
I was probably about 16, so I turned into an adult sort of, <laughs> and I went to a death sort of weekend event where you could do some filming. And I was really interested in art at the time, and I thought I could be into animation. But then, um, as a stylist, actually, I find the filming really, really boring. It was just so long and dragged on. So then at the weekend, this director was like, why don't you just try out acting? And because I was in a room full of other deaf people, I was in my comfort zone. So I act, and then I really love it, because at school, it was all hearing people, and it was always the popular kids that did drama, so I was way too shy to do acting at all. It's nothing that I ever thought of. And I think from that moment, it changed everything, because... My whole career wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for that weekend. And first of all, I cannot imagine you being shy in school. <laughs> <laughs> I was very shy, yeah. So amazing that you were able to go to this thing and meet all a whole community of deaf people and try this stuff out. Like, that's so wonderful. What a wonderful opportunity. And it's basically informed your whole career. Yeah, yeah. I think because I'm at school, I was very shy because... I was in my comfort zone. So I think I was always very confident. I was always happy. But um, even as a child, I used to be put on a show for my family or like a dance in the front room and make them watch me. So I used to be that type of child. But when I went to a secondary school, I felt like I couldn't really be myself. I felt very self-conscious. And I think that's just quite normal for teenagers. But I was in the mainstream school, so I was already different. So I didn't want to be too different. I want to be just different enough, so I was very shy. Yeah. And so when you came home from that event and you had opened this door in your head where you're like, whoa, I love acting, I think I want to do this, what happened next? And what did people around you say when you kind of told them what you wanted to do? So basically that director who set up the event, he was writing a short film. Then then he asked me to do a part in his film. So then I did that, and I think that was when I was like, you know what, I really like acting, I want to take it up as a hobby. So I was looking online to see if there was anything for deaf people out there. I didn't want to do drama at school, no way, I couldn't do it, because I would do sinning as well, I can't sin, so I had to do drama. And there was a one theatre in the whole of the UK that is for deaf children and adults as well, and it was definite theatre. And then from there, I decided to take it up as a hobby for my weekend. So I used to travel on train to go out for a weekend. But I never thought it could be a career. I just thought it was just a really fun hobby to do because I didn't see anyone deaf on TV. I didn't think, you know what, I'm going to be an actor. So I went to university and did um, fashion design because I would always love art. I love being creative. But I always make sure I have more than one option because I couldn't just pick one path because I knew that society might be quite tricky. So we have two at a backup. And had that always been the way? You know, had you always kind of had that where you, you gave yourself a couple of choices for things? Yeah, yeah. I felt like I have a safe option and I have a one that I really want to do, but I have a safe option just in case society won't let me do what I want to do. Wow. So the safe option was fashion design? Yeah, because I can do some sewing. I don't have to talk. 
I don't have to communicate, it's just make for clothes. <laughs> yeah. And then the acting was a hobby. And at what point did it start looking like it would be a career or it could be a career? So my very first paid job was in the radio. Um, and I did a radio play about a deaf girl that heard a murder, but no one believed her. And I thought, oh, one paid job, that's great. And then it started to pick up and people started to ask me to be featured. But it wasn't very often, it was very slowly. So I had like one or two projects per year, for example. But I think when I did some of the Rocket, I found that job on Facebook <laughs> um, because they couldn't find any deaf actor because no agency have a deaf actor. So they advertised it on Facebook. So then I applied for it, but I didn't hear it back from them till about a year later. They asked me to do the audition and then I got the job. And then um, because of that, I finally got an agent. I did acting for like seven years before I actually got an agent. Wow. And you got the agent because you had proven that you were successful. Yeah, because of um, some of the rocket. I was only meant to have her for just for the project. But then she asked me, oh, can you show me all your other work? So I show her all my other work. And they're like, can we have, can we represent you? I was like, oh, yes, please. Thank you. So it's really nice. And then did things change considerably after that? Definitely, massively. So they start to get me jobs that I would not be able to find on Facebook or online. I couldn't be able to find them. And so I start doing more theatre work. And when I did theatre, that really put me to the next level for acting. And they start to make me do jobs that isn't a deaf role. I'd go for an audition anyway. And then they got me the standard job as well, which then leads me to Shwitty. It's all like leads to a place, it's all like meant to be, almost. Totally. But like when you're out there, you're on the hustle, you're a new actor, you're going for all these auditions, like you say. Um, what were people's reactions to you? Because you say that it was hard to get an agent. I, I can't imagine there was many agencies that represented deaf people. So there weren't that many actors on stage or screen that were deaf so you must have been a real exception for a lot of people and how did they react to you being around I suppose? Sometimes I do have people that look quite surprised that I can act and then I get an email back from them that we really love you we love you to be part of it but we're looking into like a smaller role for you. Got it. That needs to quite frustrate me because I'm like how good do I need to be to have the roles that I went to audition for in the first place. Mm. But for you to offer me a smaller role is almost like a, a token, basically. Mm. Mm. And then I, that's quite commercial for me to say. No. Quite a big thing to say. But it's just like, no, that's where the shame really happens, is when you break out of an uncomfortable situation. Because they don't know. They never, ever work with disabled actors. So it's completely new for them. So of course I understand how overwhelming it is for them. And that's why we got the company like DTT, a deaf talent collection that was set up, because then they can consult on them and help them and get everything prepared for them to feel comfortable to hire these people. That's the thing I have to kind of understand that they don't know. So they obviously are a bit nervous to hire people who are a bit different. But if they're willing to learn and willing to make a change, and that's what Shwiti do, 
don't listen to everything that I say on you and gave me that, which means it went so much better than it is because I came to work and not have to think about my after. I just come to work and be myself and learn how to dance. That's all. It's just the same as any other people who did it. But EastEnders came first, right? Before Strictly, obviously. So what was that like? You were on the biggest show on BBC. Yeah, so really that happened so quickly because um, I would just finished my theatre show and then that day I did the audition and then I got off of a role at the centre two weeks later. So it happened so far. And then um, they gave me the role and I was only meant to be in it for like one month. No, three weeks actually. And then on my first day, before I even start acting, they said, actually, we wanted to give you a six month contract. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I haven't even done my first thing. I could be awful. Give me, come on guys. No. <laughs> and I, I was so nervous. And then she offered me that contract. I haven't even done my thing. But it was really funny. I was shaking so much on my first thing. Yeah. And how long have you played Frankie now? Um, only about two years, coming up to a year. And do you feel like there's a, a blending of sorts where Frankie and Rose are starting to meet and like you're starting to take on some of Frankie's own personality <laughs> traits? Yes, I think um, Frankie's very confident. And I think that's what kind of made me more confident. She's quite cheeky. I've always been quite cheeky, but I just sort of hide it. But now I'm like, you know what? I can be a bit cheeky. Why not? <laughs> and is it? And what's it like being part of that EastEnders team? You know that that whole group of amazing actors. I've been told that it's actually one of the hard things you can do as an actor. Really? Because because you get given so many scripts in such a short time, you have to film them in a short time. It turns really, really quickly. Mm. So sometimes you go in the first thing in the morning and you're meant to be crying and then the next thing you're laughing and the next thing you want to have a fight and then you go back to crying and then you're laughing a day and just and you do so many scenes. But it really does training ground almost. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I know you've talked about Strictly a lot, but we have to talk about you on Strictly because you have some real Gosh. perspective on it now. What are your thoughts of that whole thing now in 2022? Well, I'm still processing it up because I was so into the bubble. I was so into the Strictly. You only get, what, one day off a week. 
So now I'm not processing it or I start to see more messages and I start to read my fan letters, you know, and I start to realise how much it really impacts so many people out there. Like um the parliament was talking about me, that's just crazy. Um and it would it was morning dancing. It became so much more. It became the message behind what we do. Um the diversity about well, not just me but John and AJ, we all in the final, were the most diverse cast ever. And then with my silent moment, the dancing, and the silent with, and then people doing fancy. Last week, I went to the valley for the BSL um, to make it into official language. Yeah. And I've seen about 3,000 deaf people. And it's the first time I've seen that many deaf people in quite a long time, I think before Shitty. And one of the ladies came up to me and she said she was being in the court fighting for her rights because she got discriminated at work and she almost gave up. But then because I came onto Shritti and she saw how people acted she shame, she decided to not give up. And because she didn't give up, the court became more aware about deaf people that she won the case very quickly. Wow. That's just one story of probably so many other deaf people who were changed by seeing you on the screen. Yeah. And it's all because of people actually shaming around them. Yeah. That's the thing. It's not deaf people. It never were. Mm. It's people actually. Yeah. And what about kids, like young kids who are deaf, growing up and seeing you on the television? That must have been so profound for a small child. I would love to know what that would feel like because I didn't have that. So I can't imagine what it's like for them, honestly. Mm. So what did the deaf community say and feel about, about you being on there in general? They, um, a couple of my deaf friends are saying to me, oh my God, everything's changing because they go to a cafe and they've ordered some drink and suddenly this person goes and thank you. And they're like, oh, so everyone's saying thank you at the moment. Um, everyone doing their little clap. So, and that f- came from Shruti. Every time they see them, they seem to be really excited to meet the deaf person. While before, it initially terrified people. And I think that's really, really lovely that it's not becoming such a scary thing. Even I experienced that as well. Um, I was on a train the other day and this ticket man came to me and he realised I was deaf and was standing. I don't think he recognised me from Shruti, which is fine. But he was like, oh, I have training. We have level one training in Stanham with. I've forgotten it all. And now I really, really wish it. Because I have met about three deaf people already this year. And people want to learn Stanham with as well. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. And you mentioned the silent moment, Rose. So for those who don't know, would you mind explaining what that was? And also, whose idea was it? Well, it was Giovanni's idea. He wanted to do a dance and then the music stop and then carry on and then the music come back home. And then he did talk to me about it and I was like, yeah, I love this idea completely. But then we were talking about what should we do with a dance. I said one thing that it has to be, it has to be a positive. It can't have any sad moment. It can't have anything pity. I don't want people to be like, oh, I'm crying about it. Don't want that. I just want it to be a very joyful dance. So then he went off and met the people to corroborate it. And 
funny enough, they were um, one choreographer and he showed me the video of it. I was like, nah, I don't like it. So then he was like, right, we shamed in it to two people and the two people work with me, so they know me. So it's really nice to have someone choreographer that know me, which means it become more personal, more, more of my story. And then um, we just developed it through the week. It was one of the best week ever to um, create that dance. I mean, I watched it today again, and it's so powerful. I cried. It's the most impactful, simple way for people to understand what's going on. The best ideas are the simple ones, I think. And it was so powerful. <laughs> Thank you. I think um, it's interesting because Giovanni said it himself. Sometimes he forgets that I'm deaf because the way I done, I just really follow him. So sometimes he forgets. He sort of come up with that idea because he kind of wants to remind people that I'm deaf and I'm learning it in a completely different way. So is he. And I think that's what made it really powerful. And one thing that I really love about it is that um, Giovanni was given this sort of equipment that um, vibrates the beat so he can count along because he was so worried about being out of timing. But then eventually he started to realise, well, Rose been doing it for the last eight weeks at that point with none of this, so I should be able to do it. So then he decided to take it off and just do it in my way and it worked. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. So you taught him. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned there that you were on a rally and I would love you, if you don't mind, Rose, to tell us a little bit about this campaigning that you're doing for this bill um, and, and, and explain what, what the bill is, please. So... In this country, British Sign Language is not an official language. For some bizarre reading, I don't know why. But um, it's been recognised as a language, but it's not an official language. So what we are doing, we're trying to make the law to make it happen, which means deaf people can have more access and more rights. So, for example, you go to the doctor appointment and you say, I need an interpreter to understand what's going on with my health, for example and then they don't provide an interpreter and you go to the doctor appointment without any access. At the moment, we can't do anything about it because it's not an official language. But because if it becomes official language, it means the doctor will have to provide the interpreter. There are many, many cases of family go to the doctor and then they end up needing their child to translate to their deaf parent what's going on with their healthcare. And sometimes they have to tell their parent, you've got cancer. And a child shouldn't be doing that. And it's it happening all the time. It's still happening now. So that's just one example of, I can imagine, are hundreds of okay. deaf people not being provided with interpreters in kind yeah. of situations that involve the authorities and, you know, any sort of systemic situations. Um, so it makes total sense. So it's trying to make British Sign Language an official language. Which means we can have our right, basically. So I just want them to make it into a law. But what I heard is that it become a law, but it's a very, very fresh law. So it's not going to be overnight everything's changed. It would have to be something that you work on. It's a bit like um, mental health law. 
I'm sure when it first been created, it's a bit rubbish, and then over the year it's added on to it. So as long as we've got that first thing, then hopefully build up on it. Mm, mm. What has Strictly done for you in terms of how you feel about yourself? Oh, that's a big question. I think um, it definitely made me more confident. I feel like I could really be myself because I suppose on live TV and such a bit of show, the most scary thing you could do is to be yourself because then you might be thinking, well, if I be myself and everybody hate me, what am I going to do? But I realised, you know what, I can just be myself. I really love dancing, really enjoy that. I start to realise um, I am capable, more capable than that I think I am. Cause I would worry if I was really bad at dancing, not because I can't hear it, because I'm a bad dancer. It's going to look like I'm a bad dancer because I'm deaf. But I don't want it to come across like that. There's this whole other burden on top of your anxiety of kind of letting down not just yourself, but a whole community of people. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I knew if I was bad at dancing, it's just not going to help with a stereotype that deaf people are bad at dancing. Because there are some amazing dancers out there. I just was hoping that I was okay at it, you know, just to prove it. Yeah. So you've just you've just surprised yourself all your life. Like it's like you keep surprising yourself and finding out that you can do things that maybe you didn't think you could. And I'm wondering, is there anything else that you are feeling that you want to do in the future that you may surprise yourself by by doing for real? Yeah. <laughs> so one thing I say to myself every single year and never achieve it, I really would love to do a backflip. <laughs> I really would love to do a backflip. But I never, I don't know how to train myself to be backflip. <laughs> <laughs> every single year and not yet achieve that. Rose, you've got to be able to do that. Come on, if you can win strictly, you can do a backflip. I can do backflip. I just need to learn how to do it safely. Yeah, it's pretty hard. I mean, you might have to do a bit of training. Maybe there could be some sort of television situation where you, you become an amazing gymnast. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'd be like, OK, I'm going to try it. And then did one back flip. I'm like, oh, my God. And then that's it. See you guys. I'm now. done. Bye now. Yeah. I'm done. I'm done. I've done the back flip. <laughs> Uh, but what is what is ahead in terms of the rest of this year and the next what are your plans there's a lot of talking a lot of talking at the moment a lot of planning but nothing been confirmed yet but i'm very excited excited. that sounds exciting (laughs) um i've got a very itchy feet at the moment i know that saying but personally i think now i'm just gonna process it all get back to my routine Try and be a bit normal-ish. Um, <laughs> but I don't think anyone is normal, really. <laughs> so I think I just try and enjoy my life one day at a time, I think. Well, Rose, it was an absolute pleasure to speak to you mm-hmm. and, and hear you on today's episode. Because, again, you being on this podcast has made us completely change how we do the podcast. Because I had never thought, and this is completely my bad how a deaf person could consume a podcast and, and how we could make it accessible. So from now on, we're going to make the podcast accessible. We're going to transcribe uh, it every week on the website. And thank you for basically uh, making me see what we weren't doing. I'm really grateful for that. Oh, that's amazing. That's what I want. Just the liquid more shine. Everyone's learning one bit at a time. That's amazing that you're doing transcript because then 
maybe I can be more involved with the radio world, see what that like. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah, the world is your oyster, I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you to Rose and to her interpreter, Kirsty, who joined us for that interview. You can catch Rose on EastEnders every week and we can't wait to see what she does next. And as we mentioned, there will now be a transcript of each episode of Changes on my website going forward. There is a link in the show notes. This is now an accessible podcast for deaf people and uh, I'm really proud of that. Please spread the word. Anyone you know with hearing difficulties, let them know that Changes is now accessible for deaf people. Next week we will be hearing from David Harewood, actor, director and now author, who you may know from Homeland. His memoir, Maybe I Don't Belong Here, looks at the racial abuse he has suffered in his life and the psychosis it fueled. His incredibly candid, honest and fascinating interview and I can't wait to bring that to you. This episode of Changes was produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. Thank you and goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.